Hi, and welcome to Intercom on Product. With myself, Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom, and Paul Adams, who's our Senior Vice President of Product. Over the time we've worked together, Paul and I have had countless conversations about things like how to run a product org at scale, how to balance customer feedback on your product roadmap, how to spread a product-first mentality throughout a company, how to maintain design excellence in a fast-growing R&D team, and so much more. In this series, we're going to begin sharing some of these discussions with you on a regular basis, covering everything from industry trends, what's hot right now, all the way through to things like, how are we embracing the rise of automation? So if you're a designer, product manager, engineer, researcher, or anything in between, we think you'll find these conversations really valuable. You can subscribe to Intercom on Product on iTunes, you can stream it on Spotify, or even just grab the RSS feed in your player of choice. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Intercom on Product. This is episode number 13. Uh, we're glad to be back. Sorry for the little delay. I am joined once again by our SVP of product, Mr. Paul Adams. Hi, Paul. Hey, it is. And today's topic is innovation. To set the table, I'm going to read a couple of quotes. The first is by Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, who said, It is not enough to be the best at what you do. You must be perceived as the only one who does what you do. And then, equally eminent, Mr. Paul Adams said, Innovation to me means doing something that's new and different and better with market impact. So we're going to talk about this today. And my first question for Paul is, whenever startups talk about innovation, it's like kind of like almost the expected thing they're doing. Like, isn't everyone innovating all the time? Why wouldn't you be innovating? Paul, are you saying to me there's parts of Intercom where we're not innovating? Explain. <laughs> Thanks, Des. Uh, yes, there's a lots, lots and lots of Intercom where we're not innovating and not innovating by design. It's a very deliberate choice not to. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, like I said there in, in the quote you read out, um, innovation means doing something that is new, different, and better. But not everything you do needs to be new, different, and better. In fact, I think there's lots of times when what you do should be boring and the same as everything else that exists currently. And so you kind of have these two modes of operation. You can try and cope with a, a new and better way to do something, or you can kind of go with the industry standard. And there's lots and lots of different things in Intercom and for any company where the industry standard is exactly what you should do because it's how people expect your product to work. It's how they understand the world to work. And every single level or layer of, of what you do doesn't need to be new, different, and better. And it, that's like true at probably, it's obviously true at a micro level. Like, like, you know, people have a certain model for how resetting your password would work. Or if your product has a rich text editor, people expect bold and italics to behave certain ways, file attachments to work certain ways. So there's some sort of core, like humans know how to use computers. Let's not break that model piece. But there's probably also like a slightly more zoomed out piece, which is like, you know, if, you, if you're if you modeling teammates, there's probably a certain way to add them and remove them. And you can probably create, retrieve, update and delete them and all that type of stuff. Does it go even again? Like, would you say like time tracking apps all have some basic way in which they expect, you know, some of the core features to work like yeah. where do you stop yeah yeah i think where, where where do you stop is exactly the hard question that's exactly the thing we should probably, probably tease out a bit today i think at, at both ends of the spectrum if you have a good kind of product strategy at both ends of the spectrum the decision's quite easy at the very top it's like well well this is the thing that defines us like this mm-hmm. is this is our core innovation 
you know, to go back to Jerry Garcia, it's the only, we are the only company who does this, the, the, the only company. Mm-hmm. And then you can go all the way down to the bottom, down to the UI level and say, yes, let's not reinvent dropdowns and mm-hmm. let's not reinvent the way computers work. Yeah. And so I think what a lot of companies end up doing is when they look at this kind of whole Zoom level, and often it's project by project. And so people aren't really thinking about the big picture. Often what happens is I think people push the innovation criteria down too far. Like they, they try and innovate way down the stack when the industry standard is exactly what you should be doing. It's easier, faster, you know, move on, get, get back to the other stuff. There's also a lot of reinventing dropdowns as well, which is just bad shit to me separately. Like, you know, especially when they reinvent and they don't realize half of the stuff a dropdown is supposed to do in terms of keyboard and like skip aheads and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But like, there's an interesting piece there, which is you, you, you cite this idea of like the core innovation. Do you think like most startups have a kind of, have that grasp? Is it emergent or is it kind of like in the, in the early vision, this idea that like, hey, there's one thing where we're uniquely different. So like maybe like with Stripe, it's like the seven lines or the proverbial seven lines of code that you can use to set up or with Intercom, maybe it's the messenger, the user list or, you know, with Slack, it might be just the actual chat dialogue, the back and forth. Like, you know, do you think like early on, most startups can point to the thing and say, this is our actual area of core innovation? Yeah, I, I think most focused, successful startups can do that. And that that's probably the reason they're successful. Like they identified a clear opportunity or problem in the market that wasn't being served well and they've come up with a like back to what i said earlier a new different and better way so this is the new different and better way to do x and as a result it, you know they probably got traction started to grow and that, that becomes the defining thing then and then you need to surround that with like familiarity in a sense right like as in if you have this clear vehicle of innovation that's going to like transform companies who use the product or whatever it sounds like your proposal is then everywhere else you actually just need to like check the box is probably too dismissive, but you need to just actually meet the requirements of the user. And that, that kind of gives you the operational foundations under which to like, you can sit your actual innovation. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's kind of two factors here. One is, I know you've described this before as like get into the starting line. So like how much product do you have to build around the innovation? to be in the game like email is a great example here that we can get into like to even have an innovative way to do email you suddenly require email to work with all the other things that exist today like all the email clients and you need subject lines and formatting and rich text editors and all sorts of stuff like a huge huge kind of yeah, you like two years of your, of your roadmap is kind of inherently non-differentiating right it's yeah. like but by the time you've done all that then it's like right now we've got all that out of the way what can we do that's different yeah Exactly. So that's one big thing. I think a lot of companies, a lot of startups, and then like you hear a lot of like big companies doing kind of stealth projects or like innovation projects, or whatever, mm-hmm. and they don't really realize how much they've kind of bitten off before they get into it. And you know, like you said, it could be two years before they actually get anything to market, which is a very long time. And then the other thing is, I think once you're up and running, this kind of idea that, that we talk about here, permission to innovate. So yeah. the innovation kind of is in the market, you're in the market, you have customers, but your product, well you know, somewhat fit for purpose. Otherwise you wouldn't be kind of up and running and successful. There's still loads of stuff. It's not going to do well, you know, and there's going to be like incumbent competitors that you're kind of chasing and their product is loads of stuff better than you. And it's all kind of table stake stuff, industry standard stuff, like for intercom, there are lots of things like how reporting works and security works and like all stuff like that. That's loads of great solutions in market. There's no need to innovate there. Like, you don't, you know, intercom isn't here to innovate on how reporting works and how metrics work you know but if we don't have some of those features 
then we need to build them before we can kind of go again on the innovation. So there's this kind of balancing act. And again, I think a lot of companies see the shiny ball, the innovation shiny ball, and get dragged away from the more important stuff at the time, which is the industry standards. And as a user, like I feel like I've used these products where they're shipping changes and you know clearly excited about what they're working on, but it comes across as like slightly tone deaf. When I'm sitting there banging my fist on the table saying, will you please fix your rich text editor? And they're like, check out our new advanced, whole new way to look at search. And I'm there going, please don't work on search. Please, like, you know, like they don't have my permission to innovate or put another way, like they're not working on this area of highest impact for the customer. Uh, I, I think like it's often a sign that you're prioritizing internal excitement over user impact because you're like, where else can we be really interesting and different versus what's our customer's biggest problems and how can we get rid of them? Yeah, that's true. It is a balance at the same time, you know, because I'm sure there's probably some intercom customers listening who who have a list for me and you. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember we once got called out, remember the time we, uh, and like probably rightfully so with the maturity that we have now. Do you remember when we shipped, uh, I think it was like GIFs and emojis? Yeah. yeah. And like, uh, you know, for sure, like for those who are listening, the, the thinking which I would still support today is like, you know, intercom's whole angle is we're supposed to feel like, a messenger that you would use to talk to your friends. It's the whole idea. Our whole company mission is making that business personal. And as a result, an intercom messenger shouldn't feel wildly corporate versus a different type of messenger. And as a result, we added features like emoji and GIFs. However, if you were sitting in one of our customers' shoes at the time when we didn't say support proper ticketing or whatever, it would have been frustrating to see that launch because you've been asking us for this other thing for quite a while. And because of this feature going live, yes, you have to wait quite a while to get it. So I'm sympathetic to that. And I, I, I know we've been the, the villain in this case. It's a tricky balancing act to work out. Like there's almost a sense of this one's for you and this one's for me in a sense. Like we know what we're trying to do in terms of executing our long-term strategy. We also know that there's a couple of warts in the product today. We know our Salesforce integration doesn't work the way all of our customers want it to. We're working on it. But also, you're going to see us ship some other stuff along the way that isn't our Salesforce integration as well. Yeah, exactly. Another way to think about this is, you know, the kind of differentiation, and which is the innovation side of the house, is the reason to buy one product over another. It's like why you should buy us. This is why we are better, the best, the only thing that can do this. And then there's the other side of the house, which is the why not, which is, well, you, I mean, yeah, I get it, but you don't do the other stuff that is just like table stakes. And yeah, frankly, a bit boring, but if you, you know, if you don't have that stuff, then it's just not practical for me to, to go with you and you need both, you know, and and some companies can get trapped in the other side where they just build the why nots. They start building Mm -hmm. all the table stakes industry standards. That's the, that's the kind of emoji thing, you know, that like, if we don't continue to build out both sides there won't be a reason to, to choose Intercom in this example or any company over another. So, so it is a balance. You've got to do both. I, I totally agree. I, I think like that's, is it called Hotelling's Law? The idea that like indirect competition, the first thing to go is both sides differentiators because everyone just starts to look like the other person as quickly as they can. And you see that in both politics and in, in, indeed in, in software as well. Like the interesting thing is, I remember uh, we've done like numerous kind of market landscape analysis where we look at where Intercom sits. And oftentimes like a trap genuine B2B SaaS businesses can fall into is you look at all your closed loss reasons 
uh, as in you have a good feedback loop from your sales team and every time sales can't close a deal because of a product feature, either gap or misbehavior, that all is an input to your product roadmap. Now, if you ship all of those things, the danger is your entire roadmap becomes make us look like our competitors, like your entire roadmap. And over a long enough time frame, what happens is you stop losing deals because of you know feature gaps, but you stop getting deals because there's no reason on earth to adopt you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you you yes, you have feature coverage and you can do everything the same as everyone else, but you can't do anything different to anyone else. And I think that that's like the biggest risk of like uh, I often worry with like a lot of these like extreme customer focus where you only do things that your customers are asking for at time of deal means that you're only going to build your competitors' features and you're never going to have an actual thing that you do differently. And that basically means you're you like your marketing team will struggle because they're going to try and push a message out that says like use our ticket tracker or our like project management system or our CMS or whatever. It's exactly like everyone else's. And you know what they'll come to you with is one of those you know those feature grids where like they have like all the different logos and all the different features and there's a checkbox everywhere. And what they badly struggle for is show us something we do that no one else does. And oftentimes the only thing they can lean on, and you see this happen with so many like of, of these companies, is that. We don't have anything unique, but our unique thing is we have everything, you know, and like, that's like how, you know, strategy has gone out the window. Like, it's basically, we are the superset of all possible things anyone could possibly imagine. And like, that's not a sustainable differentiating position. Yeah, absolutely. And you have companies who are effectively building yesterday's technology today Mm -hmm. and with yesterday's positioning today, you know, and whilst the hardcore focus on customer feedback is really important. A lot of that customer feedback comes from them, your customers, analyzing the competitive landscape. And so nothing new is going to arise out of that specific type of focus. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. To move this into sort of the practical for a lot of our listeners who either are like RPMs or, or manage teams, I think like one clear outcome here for me is just you need to decide where you're innovating so that you can also decide where you're not innovating. And that's what kind of makes sure that you don't sink the whole roadmap onto just innovation 
or onto just non-innovation, i.e. just standard feature requests. There's a two-part question here. One is like, what's the traits of an area where you're like, we don't need to innovate? And then separately, how do you staff team and kind of get them excited about this area regardless? So it's something you have to do, but you're just not going to do it particularly innovatively. Yeah, I, 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 totally. I'll get into the answers there and, and we can kind of go back and forth on it. On the staff team, another kind of interesting thing there is how do you make sure that one of your product and engineering teams doesn't appear to be superficially more interesting and cool than another? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's the innovation cool team to work on and then there's the oh, t- table stakes industry standard team. This is like, the, just as a, as a side round, this is what frustrates me whenever, and I, we've been guilty of this too. Whenever anyone decides to build out a labs team in any company, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's the most politically effed up thing you can do because you're basically saying like, or you, you know, often see like companies like IBM have a chief innovation officer and you're like, well, what's the other 64,000 people doing? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, like it, it, you're basically saying we're going to come like, you join this company to be like at the bleeding edge and be innovative. Now we've compartmentalized all that. And there's a bloke called Johnny down the corridor and he does innovation. Everyone else, you're not. It's like, it's a kind of really, really weird way to do it. But at the same time, you know, like it's almost always done with good intention and almost always backfires because it sends the exact wrong message to the exact majority of the company. Yeah. It's also based, I think, on, on, on a myth that innovation needs to be a big idea. Yeah, you know, like, like that's another kind of kind of common trope you, you, that people kind of apply, and like, it just that's just not how a lot of really innovative companies work at all. Like they they are in the make everything five percent better, not not just on an optimization kind of quality front, but like let's innovate in small ways. New, yeah. like back to the new, better, different. This is new and different and better, but mm-hmm. it's small. And then we have a hundred of them, and suddenly mm-hmm. the the obviously some of that is is massive. Mm-hmm. You know, innovation doesn't have to be this big idea. Yeah. Okay, back back to the question. How do you find out where you don't want to innovate and how do you get the team excited about not innovating? Yeah, yeah. So the kind of first thing is you need a clear mapping of your product, your own product la- landscape. So for example, you know, one way we've done this in the past is that we have a table and it's quite a simple thing. Like down the left, uh, the kind of leftmost column in this table is the product and it goes from the kind of highest zoom level to the bottom. So like, you know, for Intercom, here's Intercom as an example, at the highest level would be something like the Intercom flat platform. So the full kind of customer platform, that's the kind of biggest zoom level and the, the Intercom messenger is up there as well. Mm-hmm. Then down the bottom, you have the UI basically, like down, yeah. zoom, 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 right down, down to the details, down to the UI. And like I was saying before, you know, down at the UI level, it's kind of non-controversial and up at the top, it might be non-controversial. What you can do then is you can plot the product landscape you have there on the left-hand side. You can kind of plot it going over to the right in the table with like, you know, we had three columns. So one was the kind of next, the second column in was industry standard, table stakes, you know, call it what you want, but it's the industry standard table stakes, product market fit, product gaps, like just stuff the product must have to compete. And then over in the kind of far most right column is fully differentiated. So like you're a new, different, better, the only thing, you're the only Mm -hmm. one in town. And then you can kind of figure out the middle there. So you can kind of go from the zoom level in the product, highest level to the details, and then work your way across from, yeah, look, the same is fine here to, nope, this must be the best. This must be the only yeah, and and so for us, like and like a lot of companies, almost all companies, all the UI stuff is in the first column, like just yeah. better, just make like make it industry standard, just execute it really well. Which is another bit of a side point, like just because you're going to do an industry standard thing, or you're going to design and build something the way it works in every other product out there, doesn't mean that you you can't invest a lot of energy into making it exceptionally good at that. 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, we also spend a lot of time at Intercom in that, you know, the, the user experience of Intercom is actually one of the one of the things people cite often as a differentiator for us. And it's because we've kind of got this philosophy that we will try and execute extremely well in the industry standard column. Yeah. And you know, to kind of touch on the team thing for a second, that actually is, is partly the answer to the how do you get the team excited, which is, you know, nothing here is superficially more interesting than another. You know, executing excellent reporting, you know, like our reporting team, are excited to build the best reporting. It's not going to be innovative, but it's going to be really, really good, uh, really easy to use, easy to understand, powerful, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I will, I will give our listeners a little exclusive, which is we are going to ship some pretty innovative reporting in about two weeks, I believe, right? That's actually true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, yeah. I'm back up. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, we, we, we actually have two. That's a good example, though. We have two yeah. huge reporting yes. launches coming imminently. By the time people listen to this, it might actually be already out. One yeah. is a kind of an industry standard thing, like what we, we hope ex- executed. And the other one is like, hey, a new type of different, yeah, better. Yeah, you haven't seen it before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But sorry, I, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you too extremely there, but like, uh, so what we're saying is like kind of like, you know, the, the two lenses of analysis is one is like zoom level for like the big picture, which is like, you know, like economic infrastructure for the internet. If you're Stripe, it's like making internet business personal. It's like where work happens for Slack or whatever. And then all the way down to like the UI, the the dialogues, the workflows, et cetera. And then the other lens of analysis is like the spectrum between you know, industry standard all the way up to like truly unique, like as in no one's ever seen this before. And you can kind of plot out your features, both like, you know, from the zoom level all the way down to the specifics. And then you can kind of basically mark them at each point along where where you actually want them to be, where they are today. And that kind of gives you an appraisal of where do you want to be like world-class or like truly distinct versus where are you happy to just be fine? And then you obviously you can have like an aspirational level and you can have a where you are today and, and work out like, where are you delivering and where aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Like, like to make this more concrete for people, you know, again, I just use Intercom as, as the easiest example. The Intercom Messenger, which is, you know, our vision for how customer communication to work in the future, uh, which is that you, you know, put a messenger uh, on your website in your app, it will replace email, displace all email usage, or at least most email usage over time. Like that is our fully differentiated, must be the best, must mm-hmm. be the best. And it gets copied left, right, and centers. Like so many companies, Again, back to what we were saying earlier, if you have success with an innovation, you will be copied sooner than you can realize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will copy success uh, and suddenly you're no longer differentiated. So that for us, must we must be the best. That's the kind of vision for the, for the product company. And then down in the kind of bottom, kind of bottom left of this table is like all the UI stuff where clearly we're not going to invent new UI, new, new drop-down types. Mm-hmm. Like we're just going to go with the industry standard, but try and make it as easy to use as possible. But in the middle, the middle column is probably the one that's hardest for most people. Like our, our inbox, for example, the Intercom inbox is an inbox and, and it mm-hmm. needs to work like an inbox. Like it's not our job to reinvent how inboxes work, but we want our inbox to also be perceived to be the best inbox in the market. So it doesn't have to be unique, like uniquely the best, like look different and work different or whatever, but it should be different and better, clearly different and clearly better. Uh, and so I think for a lot of a lot of listeners in their product landscape, their product map, the there should be a whole chunk of stuff in the middle in the middle column there. Yeah, and, and I think that there's two things I'd say. One is like we use the word different a lot, and I just just again for listeners, 
we mean like different in a meaningful way that adds value, not just different for different sake. Like it's, as in, it's not like it's not like an artist or, or a rock band trying to just stand out. Like we we want to stand out in a way that is meaningfully useful to our customers. And then when we say the word better, we mean in the eyes of our customers or in the hands of our customers more specifically, right? Like as in the right. the actual our, our definition of success is: do the customers find this better? You know, so when we say better, what we actually, you can net that out to, it has been ran past a group of beta testers who are target market customers for Intercom. And upon usage or exploration, they have deemed this to be better. So the shorthand for that for us is better. But that's actually what we mean. And I think like there's a, I, I, I do worry like a lot of startups can can chase the different and better. But if they're just relying on like their own appraisal and they're not their target market customer, then they'll end up kind of doing a lot of like artistic creations that never find product market fit is the fear, I guess. Yeah, that's actually a core, core point that I, I almost, it, it's kind of bread and butter to us. So you almost forget it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in, in the original quote you cited there for me, what I, I, impact. I, yeah, exactly. There's a qualifier on the new different mm-hmm. and better, which is like market impact. Mm-hmm. It has been tried and tested with customers and the feedback loops there are that it is genuinely valuable new different and better and you contribute that to value so you, you talked about the idea that any sort of success means you get copied and lord knows we've had our fill there's a question really isn't there about like the sustainability of innovation so like you can have this this new way to do whatever like a new type of messenger a new way to chat within the workplace a new type of email client but typically if you have something that's a unique take it won't be unique for that long what do you think about that? Like, is that something you, you know you think startups should be concerned with? Should they be constantly going back to the well to refill on innovation, to refill on unique positioning? Like, I guess we're going to touch on the the Kano model here, but what what's your take on it? Because like, no roadmap is is frozen in time, right? There's like all the other companies are moving around and they're all doing things. So whatever was table stakes will kind of grow. Whatever was differentiating will become a table stake, etc. How do you think about all that? Yeah, yeah. There's loads in this point alone. Like the first kind of thing, which is a, a bit of a tangent, but, but important context, I think, is that you've got to be fast. You've got to be fast. Mm-hmm. So, so like almost other than anything else here, the thing to obsess about, and we do at Intercom, is your speed. How mm-hmm. fast are you building improvements? How fast are you shipping them? How fast can you take things to market? How fast can you learn if you got something wrong and then fix it and get, make something better, et cetera, et cetera. So speed is critical. And when you think about when you've gone to market with something the speed at which people can copy you will also be critical, of course. Like you said, nothing stands, stands still. Not, you know, technology is a fast-moving thing anyway. But the speed at which people can copy you w- will be really important. And there's kind of two factors there. I'm sure there's more, but two that come to mind for me. One is the speed uh, at which those companies' teams can build software. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of first point I was making earlier. And again, like at Intercom, we kind of obsess about this. And as companies get bigger, they typically get slower. And so mm-hmm. you need to keep that in mind. And then the second part of it is how hard is it to copy? So, yeah. you know, your innovation could be really easy to copy, like literally copy the HTML off you go kind of thing, or it could be hard. And that's another kind of factor people need to think about. But, but no matter how hard it is, you know, the inevitability of innovation is that it will eventually be copied by more than one company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you do need to continually keep in mind and verify with customers you know is there a gap here is there a meaningful gap between us and the competition yeah totally and i think it's interesting when you look at a question that should occur but no one ever asks is like 
Stripe are clearly a one hundred billion dollar business. Uber are like debatably whatever seventy eighty billion dollar business. They weren't like you know Uber, Uber less so, but Stripe's been uniquely uncopied. And the answer is because you can't right click and view the CSS for having a legal team and having a finance team and a banking team and negotiating contracts with banks all over the world. Like there's actually no view source for that. So as a result, most people be like, huh, that's not as easy to copy as say whatever, like Asana or Intercom or Zendesk or whatever, where you can actually just be like, oh, I wonder how they lay that table out. Oh, that's how they do it. Okay, got it. Where like the the visibility of the innovation is quite obvious, right? Like you can, if you really want to work out what they're doing, you can see exactly what they're doing. And I think that to me says that like it wouldn't be to be, generally speaking, you're not going to have a sustainable technological innovation for as long as we're talking about a browser firing stuff back and forth. There are a few exceptions. I'd argue maybe, maybe like Figma is something that like good luck to you. You know, you're not going to be able to like basically uh, recreate or, or clone that in in its current form. But for the most part, when we're dealing with like, you know, standard you know create retrieve update delete records uh, whether it's expense tracking or hris systems whatever you know what you're doing is pretty obvious and people can copy that this is why speed matters because you ultimately build a brand of having a high pace of innovation and a high quality of execution and if you can do that your competitors will become irrelevant because they'll always be chasing your shadow and if you can if you can relegate your competitors to that point, then the fact that they can copy you is is irrelevant because they'll never catch up with you. If they can catch up with you, then you're in trouble because then they can potentially overtake you, assuming they have ever have a good idea. So like you know, I often talk about speed internally and I get like mocked a lot for my obsession with it. But <laughs> there's a method to the madness in that regard, in that like nothing we do is so fundamentally bizarrely like arcane and weird that it People can't look at what's happening in a browser and simulate it. And as a result, the idea is like, it just needs to be like manic aggression of innovation. It's like, it needs to be just consistently better stuff coming all the time. When we talk about like the Kano model, interestingly enough to me, crosses with the idea we spoke about earlier, which is this long road to the starting line. So you mentioned how like an email client, you basically have to do so much work before you can even add a single even a trivial innovation has to sit on top of maybe one to two years worth of roadmap before you're even noteworthy. I think what happens there is most of our listeners will be familiar with the Kano model, the idea that there are generally speaking three areas of work. There are table stakes as in the things that you must have and no one will ever thank you for having them. There are what's called performance things, which will be if you do it really well, it's valued. If you do it really badly, it's not. And then there are like the lighters, the things that only you do that you, that, I, that genuinely thrill your customers. And what the Kano model says is that anything that delights your customers over time will become copied by all, all your competitors. And then it will just be a question of who does it best. So it becomes a performance feature. And then over time, all performance features standardize on what the highest acceptable standard is. And then they just become table stakes, at which point there's just a certain way to do it at a certain quality. And... I think if you take a really mature software category, like say uh, email, what we've seen is, or you can take project management as another like well-trodden uh, sort of area here. What we've seen over time is anything that was delightful became standard, standardized, and then it became a performance feature. And then over time, it became a table stake. And 
do that for like 20 years. And what you have is a really thick layer of table stakes, which means that for you or I to go and start a new product in this category, the like foundations are so deep and the required execution is so high quality that it'll be a long time before we can do anything. And that's ultimately why, like, if you take something like, say, Superhuman, or even like take like a Linear, who are probably going to push in on the Jira space, they have been in like this insane private beta mode for so long because there's just so many areas where they need to like outperform in order to even break through the noise and be like, not just another email client, not just another task management product or whatever. I think... It's wise for people when they're picking areas to innovate, especially if they're starting a new company, to like bear in mind the ratio of table stakes to like the opportunity for innovation. Because it turns out like being an email client that has a native GIF feature, you're going to be a long time building the damn email client before you even get to touch the native GIF feature. And, and like similarly, if you're in a larger company, it's worth appraising your own position for like how much of our stuff is now just standard and of all of our differentiators and all of our unique things. So for us, as you said, Paul, it's like the messenger, the inbox is maybe a performance feature, et cetera. Like we know over the passage of time, all of those things will inevitably either A, become table stakes, or B, we're going to have to go back to the well and refresh them all over again to kind of refill their innovation and refill their market distinction. Thoughts? <laughs> that was a good monologue. That was a good monologue. Uh, I, I, yeah, like I'm just sitting here, uh, standing actually, nodding away there. I'm nodding away. One thing that that does strike me about this, which is something I think again, people need to really think about. You know, like these days, you know, people obviously say things like "don't obsess about your competitors" and you know, so on. But it's a healthy. You need to have a healthy look at your competitors. But there's an interesting dynamic here, which is that. If you have like a, a successful and growing startup and you have a bunch of incumbent companies and the kind of startups trying to displace the incumbent companies, take their market share, et cetera, there's basically a bit of a race going on. It's a very dynamic thing, but there's a bit of a race. The race is, can the incumbent company build the delighters so fast to make them performers and then down into table stakes faster than the startup company can build the table stake stuff they're missing? Yeah, yeah, I see. So, so right. it's a, can the incumbent just raise the bar so high that startups can't even get a, can't even hit it? Yeah, like if they can copy. So, so the, usually the startups have a table stakes gap, you know. Yeah. So, like if if you've got a like all the, all the examples you mentioned, you know, people were like HR is kind of a great industry that I, I think we'll, we'll see a lot of really interesting companies come out over the next few years. And there's a lot of table stakes stuff there, security and compliance and all sorts of stuff like that. But that's not where they started, you know. They're kind of like trying to fast build and close the gaps to the incumbent so, so that when they say to a potential customer, hey, switch to us, there's no main big reasons not to switch, right? So they're trying to close all those gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, the kind of incumbent company that's under threat here is trying to build the differentiated features that the startup has, like the delighters in the Kano model. Yeah. Uh, and, and whoever does that fastest, in many cases, back to the speed point, whoever does that fastest will win. Right. It's, so it's like, like it's the startup's ability to check the boxes on table stakes versus the incumbent's ability to find new innovation or to sorry to, to clone the innovations of the current startup is actually what the battleground becomes. Yeah. And, and yeah. if the yeah, and if the big company, if the incumbent is doing that successfully, they're half of it, then yeah. the startup now needs to do both. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, and then 
uh, one question we didn't get to properly earlier. So if you're in that startup and you've got your team who are working on like team differentiation, who are like doing all the sexy stuff, like getting all the love on Twitter, et cetera, how do you motivate and excite team table stake, right? The people who are working if in your hypothetical, you know, HR system, somebody's building a cool way to like navigate an org chart in a whole different way. And it might be like insanely valuable in a 3D virtual environment, blah, blah, blah. Somebody else is building the payroll integration. How do you make sure that both people feel like that they're winning? My, my, my argument, but I look, but like you're the one who actually has to have these conversations. Uh, my argument would be like, you're both delivering the innovation just two different means in that. Like I, I often use the phrase like, you know, it's a bad state of affairs when someone would be like, oh, there's a hole in your side of the boat. It's like, nope, that hole's going to affect both of us, right? A HRS system does not work without a payroll integration, no matter how damn innovative it is. And, you know, it doesn't mean like the, you know, the fact that you need that integration and at the same time, you just need to check the box. It doesn't mean you're not delivering the whole innovation. Yeah. You know, as somebody who, who actually sits with teams and says things like, we need to get this out the door. It needs to like meet our users' requirements, but it's not the most important area where we need to re- reimagine the whole category. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, I, the, fir- the first thing and the most fundamental thing is to explain the, the landscape we've just covered, to explain that to people. Because you know what I've found in the past is that once kind of like smart people working for you understand the full landscape and understand the Kano model and how things work and how successful companies, you know, rise up the, up the charts, whatever. Once they understand that, a lot of this just goes away, you know, because they, people are like, yeah, well, I mean, I get it. So I get that. The, it's the full picture. We're all on mm-hmm. the same team, you know, and the superficial nature, like innovation is this kind of, you know, superficial kind of glory associated with it. And once you kind of explain the full landscape, explain that big table, and people get where, you know, they, their part of the thing fits. Honestly, my experience has been a lot of this goes away. And I've actually seen people, lots of people move from the, you know, quote unquote, innovation part of the product team to the other part of the product team. I've actually seen people move in all directions mm-hmm. equally. Lots of people want experience doing doing all parts of it, you know. So if they've only worked on the new shiny stuff, they actually want to get the for their for their kind of career and growth and so on they want to get, get experience doing the like table stakes part of the business because there's a different bunch of kind of requirements and skills and the trade-offs you might make in decision making can, can be quite different it's it's definitely a different mode of work as well and i think like yeah. you, you're totally right like especially if you want to go on and start a company or, or like get that sort of early stage experience you need both sets of muscles one alone is not sufficient yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the that's the biggest thing for me, honestly, is explaining to the team how this kind of works and the problem kind of seems to solve itself. Yeah, the like the example I often say is like, you know, you could be working on a Tesla, but I guarantee you like, you know, there's some areas of Tesla that probably just aren't the innovation areas. Like maybe it's the indicator, maybe it's the seatbelt, maybe it's I don't know, the ashtray, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Like you should take your motivation for the fact that you're still delivering a revolutionary and breakthrough car to the world. The piece that you work on is necessary for that to happen. And yeah, and like never forget it in a sense. Uh, okay, well, maybe just to retread the ground here, like the things we've talked about are one is like this idea that like you know innovation isn't always ROI positive. There are features that you will not be able to extract a significant market impact from no matter how amazing a job you do on them because they're not in the sort of the core buying differentiator for customers. We talked about the idea that you can map out your 
product sort of architecture at various zoom levels from like the top line thing that you're delivering all the way down to like the ui or specific features and you can have honest conversations about where do we need to be unique where do we need to be strong and where do we just need to be in market we talked about like how we know what you know it's important to share this context with the team so that they understand that like no work is more important than any other work some work is literally like the re- reason people will want to buy and other work is the reasons why they can buy but both are extremely necessary and neither alone are sufficient any closing thoughts paul you'd say to our listeners who again we, we know through the surveys we're talking about like you know people who run product orgs or d orgs engineers etc at both startups and mid-stage companies yeah, the, big, the biggest kind of thing for me is if you don't have this kind of table, this map of your product, if it's, not, if it's not obvious and easy for you to kind of imagine in your mind or it's not really written down anywhere, I'd really encourage people to do it. Like I've worked on many a kind of, you know, over the course of my career, many a team or product area, especially when I was at Google and, and Facebook, more at Google, like these big, big companies where we didn't really at the time understand the kind of industry standard table stake stuff versus differentiation. For a, co- a company like Google at the time, it was like, everything must be new and innovative and better. And, you know, there was an innovation kind of glory culture there a little bit at the time. And so and that's actually only a part of Google, to be fair, like, you know, in Google search and other places, it wasn't like that. But the thing is to map the table, map the table. Uh, and it'll really help, you know, explain it to yourself and your team, like how and where and when you should be coming up with new ways of doing things versus excellent execution of the industry standard. Yeah, which which alone, by the way, is like not an easy thing to achieve, as we know all too well. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today, Paul. I hope everyone found this interesting and useful. We'll be back shortly with episode 14. And uh, please leave us a nice review in the App Store or wherever the hell you leave podcast reviews these days. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Intercom on Product podcast. For more content, go to our blog at intercom.com slash blog. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.